All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Uh, so we just had a case come down uh, from the Supreme Court, five to four, narrowly, but it actually came down on our side. Uh, with Chief Justice John Roberts uh, ruling with the liberals on the court, believe it or not, saying that uh, abortion um, basically cannot be prevented in Louisiana. Now that's a big, big summary of a more uh, uh, case with uh, more detail. And that's why we brought on uh, someone to talk about it. Uh, and it's really about abortion providers. So Liz Winstead is the co-creator of The Daily Show. She was also the head writer at The Daily Show. She's also the founder of Abortion AF, which of course stands for Abortion Access Front. Um, and, and Liz, you've been following this case closely. It's great to have you back. So Thank tell you. us more specifically what the case was about. So to lay out what the case is about, you have to look at what the case was about four years ago. When Texas brought this exact same case before the court, we all remember Wendy Davis standing in her pink sneakers. Um, That was this case, it went all the way to Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, wow, you wanna know what? Um, The hospital admitting privileges that uh, the state of Texas tried to enforce is unconstitutional. Now John Roberts in that case, was ruling on the side of Satan, not on the side of the abortion angels. But John Roberts is a big, big fan of precedent and also his own legacy. And so this time around, he basically had no choice but to side with the liberals to say, you know what? Four years ago, this court said these laws are unconstitutional and I can't in any way, shape or form see how this case is any different. And so since I believe in precedent and stare decisis, I have to say, uh, we're gonna throw this Louisiana law out the door. And they did. So it's it's great, great news for a couple of reasons. One, because without this ruling, Louisiana would have been down to just one abortion provider in the whole state, which would have made it de facto unavailable and inaccessible for huge amount of people in Louisiana. And and so that was of course the intent of the law. And so the fact that they struck it down is great. And it does create a, it would have created what the Supreme Court has called a substantial obstacle to getting abortion. And so, uh, but, but it goes beyond that. Liz, to me, probably the best part of the decision is if uh, John Roberts is saying I'm gonna respect a precedent that's been in place for just four years. Well, it seems like you would certainly then respect the precedent that's been in place since 1973 called Roe versus Wade. So does that mean this is over? Uh, this court will not overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, I think not. And I think that when Roberts wrote in this opinion, pretty specifically saying this particular law, because it had been set, um, has been something he wanted to uphold, but he did say if something else came down the pike, another type of abortion law, that John Roberts would be willing to hear that and throw it out. We forget oftentimes that there's Roe v. Wade, and then there's been many abortion cases in between. Um, The biggest one probably being Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was the law that states sued to curb access to abortion. And in that law, they upheld Roe, but they said a state could create laws if they didn't quote, create an undue burden. But the court never ever defined what an undue burden was. So that's how you get these Louisiana laws and these Texas laws. And so as we look at what undue burden 
is or isn't because there's no definition. These laws could come and strip away Roe to the point where Roe doesn't exist. And I think that we all have to remember that as these laws come through state legislatures, if you have an attorney general in your state that's not going to challenge them, or you, and now that we have a circuit court that's been packed by Trump, we don't have a process for which anybody is going to pay any attention to Supreme Court precedent. And who knows what John Roberts will do next time. Yeah, anything else to look out for in this particular case? The thing that was interesting about this case is that there was a second piece to this case, which is the courts also ruled in the same five to four decision, same people, whether or not a clinic would have standing to sue on behalf of patients. If the courts had ruled that clinics didn't have standing, that would mean that any, it would have to be an individual seeking an abortion who would have to bring a case against the law. And as we all know, it takes about three years for a case to go through a court system and pregnancy is nine months. So ostensibly there would have been no cases that would ever be able to be brought to challenge these laws. So the fact that they shut that down is pretty incredible. So it is a double win, but don't celebrate too hard because a next case is gonna come down the pike that who knows how the circuit courts and how Roberts is gonna feel about that. Well, I'm gonna offer a compromise here that we celebrate super hard right now and then tomorrow for, you know. Yes, I should have come on hammered. Now that I think about it, I should have (laughs) celebrated and then come on, I kind of blew it. Yeah, but seriously, you know, this is a big win. Uh, and and it, Liz, I actually think there's a political ramification here too, which is that you know one of Trump's main uh, reasons to go out and vote for him for conservative or evangelical voters is, don't worry, I'm getting you. No matter what kind of a monster I am or bad guy or you don't like my language, you don't like the way that I attack people, you don't like that I have 18 mistresses and all that stuff, right? But hey, I'm getting you conservative Supreme Court justice, and we're going to overturn Roe v. Wade and all this stuff. Now with this Supreme Court ruling in favor of LGBTQ rights, in favor of dreamers, and now in favor of abortion providers, he might be in even bigger trouble in trying to get people out to the polls. Well, here's where I might challenge that. And that is his two guys voted and had very strong language on this abortion case. And I think that a lot of times, and a conversation that progressives need to have more is that when it comes to dreamers and when it comes to LGBTQ rights, um, those are people. Abortion is something that you decide to have, right? And so um, it's always been an outlier, even in progressive spaces, because it's it's not tangible in the sense that when we're talking about dreamers, we are talking about a group of people who live in our society. And you talk about gay folks, same thing. Abortion is something you have. And so until we rectify as a society that abortion is literally the way that someone has emancipation over their own body. And why that is important to humanity, to human rights, to self-determination. And we really hold that with all of the importance that it is. Uh, we're still going to be able to use it as a wedge issue, and progressives are still going to be able to um, use it as a tool that puts it into a space that they feel they can find compromise on. 
And yeah. I'm fighting against that. Yeah, Liz, I love the way you just framed it. That it's an emancipation issue. That is, that's exactly right. And so, all right. Now, I also know that there is a case about birth control coming up. So, tell us about that. Yeah. So, coming down, it, it could be as early as this week or into early into July. But we all remember the Hobby Lobby case and how um, a Christian craft store has decided that they could um, uh, decide that birth control was against their uh, religious beliefs. Um, a new case is coming down the pike. It is Trump v. the state of Pennsylvania. They merged with the Little Sisters of the Poor, taking it out of the religious RIFRA realm and putting it into a very broad, vague morality realm so that any corporation, when I say any, Goldman Sachs could say, my morals say that I don't want to cover my employees' birth control. Um, it has taken it out of the religious realm and has trumped the most insane argument that corporations not only are religious, but now they're also moral and can have moral decisions made about the healthcare plans of their employees. It could, if they rule on this, the ramifications could be massive. And and there is no definition of morality. It's just a broad moral statement. All the corporation needs to say is, my morals object to your birth control, done. Yeah, you know, with the mythology that the Supreme Court has created over all these years, it's hard to keep track of what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> so if a corporation has morals, who in the corporation, does the CEO get to decide? Do the shareholders get to decide? Is like. Whose morality are we talking about? Maybe one shareholder believes in abortion and another one doesn't. So, I mean, this is absurd. Well, and also, what if what if the morality of this corporation? What if the corporation looked at you, Jank, and said, "You want to know what? I don't see you as somebody who should be parenting. I question your judgment on parenting. So, I'm going to force you to use birth control." Could that happen? I don't know. Yeah, and and by the way, of course they couldn't make you do it, but what they could do is fire you for not doing yes. it. Yes, and they could and they could make it so that you can't afford your health coverage if you don't follow their so-called morality. And it's bad enough when that morality is attached to a human being who's controlling your life. I think it's arguably worse when it's an amorphous machine that we created called a corporation. Uh-huh. I don't even know what that means. They don't seem to have exhibited one yet, Liz. I know, I have not seen one yet. I've not seen a corporation that I feel like I wanna just give over to, to have them decide whether or not I'm moral. Yeah, so they don't have a great track record, great track record on morality. I'm talking no. about public corporations in particular. All uh-huh. this is absurd, but the Supreme Court can rule the wrong way and then you know, God help us all. Um, and yeah, uh, I'll leave it at that. All right, uh, Liz Winstead, as always, you're a national treasure. Thank you for joining oh, us. So great to be here. Thanks so much. All right, welcome back to the conversation on the TYT network. Uh, we got a great guest for you guys now. He's in the middle uh, of an election that happened last week. What? As my kids would say. So New York's 12th district, Siraj Patel, and he was running against Carolyn Maloney, and he still is. The race is too close to call. So Siraj, 
Welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, thanks for having me again. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, so let's review because uh, this is a little complicated. The election was last Tuesday. Uh, we have a general sense of uh, some of the other folks who won in New York, like uh, Jamal Bowman, and we celebrated and Mondaire Jones, and we celebrated those progressive victories. Uh, you are uh, challenging Carolyn Maloney, who is another incumbent. Who is not as progressive, let's say. Um, so, but your race is too close to call. Um, so, what is the current status of it right now? Yeah, um, so currently you can tell I'm in my post campaign beard and just waiting in this weird flux period for myself. Um, but uh, so the election ended on Tuesday, um, but because of vote by mail, um, 39,000 ballots were cast. Uh, over the early vote period and on Tuesday last week. And after those ballots were counted, um, I am down by 650 votes with what we uh, figure is an approximately another 35 to 40,000 ballots in the mail left to count. Uh, that won't happen until next week. So um, we're pretty much tied. Yeah, and so it's 1.6%. I did the math in my head right just now. Kidding, I looked it up earlier. Um, so, so obviously it's very, very close. Um, and and so, do I have this part of the math right? So you're saying thirty nine thousand already counted, but there's another thirty five thousand or so left to be counted. So it's only about fifty percent reporting. Is that right? That's exactly right. That's why it's just absolutely too close to call. Um, and our whole goal on this campaign going forward is to make sure that every single vote is counted. Um, and so, you know, we've got a um, a system in New York where our boards of elections are in all three different boroughs. And so we just have to stay on top and, and watch these ballots be counted. Okay, and so how do you do that? Because I saw that you wanted the courts to uh, to get involved here. So how do you want the courts to get involved? Are, are you worried about the vote counting and what's the ideal way to do it? Yeah, um, so actually we you know, filed a suit that is very commonplace for anyone. I, I believe Rep Maloney will file, file the same suit. If you want a seat at the Board of Elections table when the votes are counted, you have to file a claim. So we have done that. Um, and so what's gonna happen is next week, I think on Monday, they'll start opening up these ballots at all three different board offices and, um, and then scan them in. The ballots can be invalidated if the signature on the outside is missing or wrong or some other technicality. And so one of the things we're gonna make sure and then do is, is to make sure that as, as, you know, all the ballots are counted. Um, and watch over so that no one invalidates ballots based on signatures and technicalities, things like that. Um, so it's gonna be a, you know, a long process, there's no doubt. And I wish I'd had some more closure on an election after after running such a long one. But at the same time, um, you you mentioned it, Mondaire, um, uh, you know Jamal. Like it, this was a change election across New York and and frankly across the country. People are rejecting a failing status quo. They saw COVID. They saw uh, you know how our healthcare system uh, needs a complete overhaul. How the inequities in our economy and economic opportunity. Um, really, really, you know, befall when something like COVID happens. The working people and working class and small businesses. Um, and then I think, you know, at the end of this race, we saw a massive civil rights movement, uh, you know, awakening before our eyes with George Floyd. And 
people recognize that the way things have been going uh, aren't acceptable anymore. The status quo is just failing. And that's evidenced by the fact that um, you know, uh, someone like Elliot Engels lost, uh, someone like Carol Maloney can't you know, is somewhere around 40% in her race in her district after spending $3 million, um, a ton of corporate PAC money, super PAC dark money, uh, all those things and still. And so it shows you that um, this is a time for change. 2020 is a year for change and voters are soundly rejecting the status quo across the board, which is great. So Suraj, you ran two years ago as well. In, In that race, you lost by 20 points. In this race, we got a tie. Plus, there was two other progressives in the race um, that got a decent amount of vote. Uh, Lauren Ashcraft got over 10 points. Uh, and so that makes it much harder, yet you still closed a big gap. So what do you think was the difference in those two years? Why do you think uh, this this race is so much more competitive? Um, great question. And truth is, uh, you know, uh, Lauren and Peter ran excellent races and our district is one that is very diverse, dynamic. It's 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 educate. It's the most educated district in the country, and so people are very discerning. They research their candidates and and they look. Um, you know, we we had three progressives in this race. Our positions on Medicare for all, on Green New Deal, all those things are the exact same. We were branded different, but um, uh, you know, I don't consider myself DSA. But other than that, um, three progressives, which means again, the biggest lesson to be learned is how soundly rejected the status quo was. You know, um, but to your point, we knew we had uh, other progressives in the race, and because of that, we knew the only way to win was to persuade a lot of Maloney voters, persuade what are typically um, voters who don't go for an insurgent um, to to switch sides, and not just go and mobilize people who agree with us. And I think I learned that lesson two years ago, Cenk. I ran obviously. Um, and and ran a very very hard progressive campaign, but in our district, you know that wasn't enough. And we learned really honestly that we have to persuade. Seventy percent of the vote in our district comes from Manhattan, and you know that's not your typical, um, you know, where we have Brooklyn, we have Queens, where we have a lot of really strong left leaning support. Um, you know, in Manhattan, you've got to you've got to persuade voters who are uh, by and large want reform. And and in this case, wanted big change, but you've got to get them comfortable with what that change means. And we did that. So, Suraj, I'm very curious about that then, because you did do it, and you're tied with her now under very very difficult circumstances. And so, how do you get those older liberals in places like East Manhattan, a very well-to-do part of town? to come in the progressive direction, what what works? What appeals to them that has them go, Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, on the two issues of our time, um, you know, first off, I'll say how we started this race. We ran on bold uh, policy ideas. The universal child allowance that I proposed at the start of my race uh, was covered, you know, nationally by CNBC and others. It would half child poverty in the first year alone. Um, the research and discovery moonshot we proposed, the discovery project, would have increased our federal research and development budget to where Apollo levels were. These kinds of like nuanced policy ideas prove to people that you know you're not just taking bumper sticker slogans and and copying pasting you know typical our normal policy Medicare for all and all that which we agree with. We're also working to convince people by putting out novel ideas. And then also on this race, Cenk, we made a million phone calls. 
Um, we delivered thousands of meals and supplies to seniors during COVID. We stepped in where the Congresswoman's office disappeared during COVID. We helped people with their unemployment insurance. We helped people with their small business loans. We basically turned into the constituent services shop. Um, we basically started doing the things that uh, that you're supposed to be doing when you're in Congress as as a as a candidate. And then, of course, let's not forget, you know, even you know, no matter where you are, if you're a good progressive, if you're a good liberal, uh, you know that that racial, um, uh, you know, systemic oppression in our criminal justice system and police brutality has to stop. It doesn't matter how much you earn. If you're a good liberal, you believe that. And towards the end of this race, we were really able to convince a lot of people that. Um, Sending somebody who was an architect of mass incarceration, someone who voted for 94 crime bill, who celebrated it, someone who voted for mandatory minimums multiple times in her career, someone who voted with Republicans to create ICE, voted with Republicans to build a border wall in 2006. That person cannot be the person in the middle of a civil rights uprising to lead us out and to fix the criminal justice system. You know, And so we really, really pointed out uh, that the representative's record isn't just not progressive. In many cases, her record on social issues is not even today really democratic. So, Suraj, um, that's interesting because how did you get that to stick? So, for I, because Bernie did not emphasize the 94 crime bill, which uh, Biden uh, is one of the principal architects of. And so, uh, whereas it apparently you had some traction with that against Maloney. So I wonder if there's a lesson to be learned there. Yeah, I think that I absolutely think that there was obviously the moment met the argument um, towards the end of this election with the protests and everything happening right in the last two weeks. I would also say that the um, distinction here is obviously I'm a lawyer. I've worked with the ACLU. I talked about this issue not just this year, but two years ago in Iran too. Um, and Rep Maloney, I think her record isn't just bad, it's really bad on this issue. So much so that two years ago when I ran against her and I said Black Lives Matter, um, Rep Maloney went on to defend Ray Kelly and wrote an op-ed a few years back uh, citing Ray Kelly as an excellent choice for Trump's FBI director. Now Ray Kelly, for those of you who don't know, not New Yorkers, was like, is a major uh, um, proponent of stop and frisk. And the way he implemented it as police commissioner was found unconstitutional. So this is a person who's tied intricately with um, with with tough on crime politics, you know? Yeah. All right. So whether it is in a couple of weeks or a couple of years, uh, future Congressman Suraj Patel, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it, uh, and good luck with the with the count. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate it.